Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. And I have to tell you, it's Christmas time. And I, I haven't heard my song that always reminds me of Christmas. But I heard it last night. I actually played it on YouTube. And it's uh, Bruce Springsteen's Santa Claus is Coming to Town. And the reason it reminds me so much of Christmas, it was probably like late, the late 80s, 88 or 89. And I was doing a comedy show at the King of Prussia Comedy Cabaret. And I just wasn't in the mood for Christmas. And I sat there waiting for the second. I was hosting it. So I waited for the second show on a Saturday night. Had a few beers. Got my check, got into my Fiero, the lovely Fiero I had, and started driving on the Schuylkill Expressway, which is takes you to Vine Street, which takes you to the bridge, Ben Franklin Bridge into New Jersey. And it just started to snow a little bit. And I drove by Boathouse Row, which if you're not familiar, if you watch TV, it's where all the all those they show those lights, those house. And at Christmas time, it's so beautiful. And just as I was driving there, I heard the bells and I heard Springsteen, you know, saying, Oh, that's not many, that's not many. And that made it Christmas time for me. So now I'm in a Christmas mood, and that's every year I have to play it. But I haven't heard it, so I had to play it on YouTube last night, which sucked, but it's all right. But anyway, we have a great guest today. We have Greg Barrett. How you doing, Greg? Yeah, good. Very good, man. Now, you're, you're a musician. Now, do you have any songs that remind you of Christmas or songs you have to hear at Christmas time? Um, yeah, well, yeah. I mean, a lot. I like Christmas music. I love Christmas. So it's all, I mean... Everything from you know Nat King Cole to um, Do They Know It's Christmas Time was a big one for me when I was young. I like that a lot. I mean, if you really break the lyrics down of the song, it's ridiculous. But it's a. It, I remember loving that a lot, loving the idea of all those English pop stars getting together and making that song. Um, the Ravenettes Christmas song is probably my favorite. But I heard one the other day that blew my mind. It's. Um, the, it's Band of Horses and the lead singer from Granddaddy, and okay. it's called um, Hang an Ornament, and those are the only lyrics, and it's one of the prettiest Christmas songs I've ever heard. See, I gotta check it out. I, I also like that. Uh, it's sort of dark, but you ever heard the Pogues one? Yeah, that's sure. Always, that's gonna be, yeah. and that's what's great about YouTube. Like earlier, I was listening to a Philadelphia radio station, WMMR, because I grew up. Yeah, sure. I've been on there, and. Uh, it was great because Pierre Robert has been around forever. Was playing his Christmas songs, and it's always like, I don't know. I think back east, there's a lot more Christmas songs. I know you grew up. Uh, you grew up in San Francisco area. Yeah, right? I grew up in the Bay Area. Now, was Christmas really big up there? Yeah, yeah. It's a pretty yeah because it's um you know any place where the weather plays into the into the whole notion of Christmas, and uh, San Francisco does it upright. You know they do the store windows and the whole thing. So uh, and it's a tolerable kind of winter there. You know it's like it's like a movie version of winter. It's like it's cold but you can still go outside. You wear a jacket, it rains a bit. Um, but yeah, yeah, San Francisco, the Bay Area is big Christmas, big Christmas area. Now, when you grew up, when you were a kid, I mean, because your career, I mean, you've said you, you, you do music, you do comedy, you host, you've written. Yeah. Were you a creative kid or were you an athlete or what were you as a kid? Well, I, I aspired to be an athlete because, um, you know, I'm 51 years old. So when I was a kid, if you were not a jock, you were a pussy. Right. And that was it. Those were the only two male archetypes when I was a kid until I got an Aerosmith record and figured things out. But at that point, I was already, already through high school. So. Um, I, yeah, I wanted to be a jock, you know, um, my only, the only compliment I got in four years of high school football was when I was a senior, it was halftime of a game that we were losing and I was the second string fullback and the first string fullback was a guy named Ken Flax and the coach gets us in the locker room and he goes, we got a guy out here, number 44, Ken Flax playing like a pussy. We got guys like Greg Barron here who work hard all week who will never see the field. that was like my 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 that was sort of my sports career in a nutshell you know um and around that time i bought a les paul i got a les paul copy and a court i think or something like that and i started playing music Mm. it's so so funny about the albums like you said aerosmith and i still remember when uh live bootleg came out and during dream on when he says f you know everyone's like oh my god he said the f word and the radios always put that weird sound like Whoop, like when you ever hear the vinyl fems, they do it. They put that weird, like, barking over it. I, you know, what's so funny about it is I, like, I, I flipped out on the first record, um, but I couldn't, I couldn't, I could not figure out if Steven Tyler was a chick, like a chick or not. Like, I actually was fa- like a vaguely attracted, like, that is a very hot lady. Isn't that a lady? Right. It's a dude, but it's just like, yeah, he was like, because he was like, I know that there's always, you know, there's always this incredibly unfair and in, incorrect comparison to the Rolling Stones. If you listen to their music, they're not even kind of close. There's nothing about Aerosmith that sounds like the Rolling Stones, except for when they play the same blues song. But they they looked it. 
they really looked it. You know what I mean? Stephen looked had a passing resemblance right. to Mick, and you know they were sort of the archetype for how to how to dress like that. But you know Joe Perry was really saying, "No, I'm doing Johnny Thunders," and you know, but they they were really that was my first. I think that was the first time I think as a man I went, "Oh, you don't have to. You can dress like a you can dress like a girl. Like you don't have to." There just weren't dudes like that in my life. Right. So Steven Tyler and David Lee Roth were like those. There weren't dudes like that at my high school. So to me, they were like um, uh, Sherpas to a, you know what I mean? They were like my Eskimos. It took me to a whole other world that I didn't realize was okay to, to be in. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, yeah. Well, anything like for us, like we had, well, in South Jersey, there was a bar that was a total metal bar. Yeah. And like the first house band was Bon Jovi. Then it was Cinderella. Mm-hmm. Then it was Brittany Fox. And then it was yeah, a group sure. called Heaven's Edge, which a guy, an Asian guy named Reggie Wu went to my high school. He's a year older. And first of all, we didn't have a lot of Asians in my town. Yeah. And just to see this Asian guy with this long hair and just sure. shredding, it was yeah. it was weird. But So we had that around. My brother played drums in a band, so I had that around me. But a lot of people, I mean, Steven Tyler and Mick Jagger, I mean, and even like with David Lee Roth, I mean, when you saw them, you're like, wow, you can just be flamboyant and it's cool. And girls like it. Well, totally. And girls like it. That was the thing for me. I'm like, oh, there's another way to, to, to skin this cat that doesn't involve getting knocked down by other dudes. And I was always sort of uncomfortable with that. And so then the rock and roll thing, and I realized that like there was a whole world of this stuff happening. I just wasn't involved in it. I didn't know about David Bowie. I sort of missed the punk thing when it happened. It all sort of came to me late. You know, I started to like really get into music like 81, like just as I was going to college. You know, I'd been so sequestered as a jock that my only music experience was listening to Skinner in the parking lot. Like it was just Skinner and Molly Hatchet and 38 Special, all that I, Southern rock stuff. I never understood how the 38 Special fit into that. They, they were, don't. They're always they like don't. glam. Like Molly Hatchet, I mean, and, and you're a guitarist. Yeah. The Outlaws of Greengrass and High Tides. Sure. It's just an amazing, that you know, yeah. as soon as that guitar solo, you go, okay. I'm keeping this station on because it just catches you. Yeah. But 38 Special, I was like, they're like a Pantene commercial. Yeah, no, they were like, well, it's just because of the brother. That's all. It was just, they were, they were, they were, um, grandfathered in because they were, they, you know, and right. then, you know, Skinner was over and there was only Donnie left or whatever the guy's not, or not or whatever the brother's name was and never 38 Special. And so, you know, um, yeah, they, none of them had the gravitas of those other bands. They were the danger or the, you know what I mean? I mean, now you look back at it and you go, or the racism, but. Right. <laughs> <laughs> or the, wow, we all had Confederate flags and really didn't quite get it. I know. It's so funny. It's, and those concerts, I mean, they, you know, it was just the crowd. You're like, oh my God. I mean, if you saw that crowd now, you'd be like, holy crap. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. Wait a second. Yeah, There's yeah. going to be some violence here. Yeah, yeah, totally. Totally. So you got turned on to, in college, you got turned on to the different bands. Now, yeah, then I, then I got, like, so when I started to really dig into music was was in the post-punk era. So just as the Clash were winding down and bands like, uh, you know, Stray Cats and Adamant and, and all that, like, that was the stuff that I really got into. Bow Wow Wow were still one of my favorite bands. Like, that was my sort of, the post-punk stuff was where I really kind of connected. J- jam, the jam, you know. Um, uh, and I like that stuff because I couldn't play the Eddie Van Halen stuff. And there was, that was also, that was the other thing is like, you start playing guitar and then all of a sudden there are these guitar jocks that play that shreddy stuff. And I, while I liked listening to it and I liked a good George Lynch solo just as much as anybody else, I really connected with the romantics or any of those power pop bands where it was just three chords. It's probably yeah, easier to play. Now, did you start a band in college? Yes, I started a band the second I got a guitar in high school, actually. I had okay. a band called Blood Clot and the Strokes, which was like a little punk band, and we got in, I played uh, with. And then um, and then when I got to college, um, I played in a couple of bands, uh, one called Pelican Bob, and then you know, another one called the Brechtian Playboys. Um, and they were just punk power punk bands you know what i mean like old school kind of like the meat men sort of thing so you go to college you're playing music now what what made you foray into comedy i mean where did that come i mean you seem you seem you were a musician well, here's, first. so here's how it goes so so i the, the i mean you know the, because the story is obviously everyone's life is a little bit more nuanced i also played rugby when i was in college high school so you were a jock then and my high school rugby team when the were the it was the first year that the that the club came into existence there was never a rugby club until my senior year and all the misfits of 
sports, all the losers, all the all the guys that didn't make the baseball team or the guys that didn't play soccer like that, we all joined the rugby team and we won the national championships. It was like a Disney thing. So I went and played rugby at, at, at the University of Oregon. And while I was still, when I just started playing guitar, I still was kind of conservative and I joined in a fraternity and I was playing rugby at, at the U of O. And then I met a guy who had a clash record and changed my life. And then I got kicked out of that fraternity and I started to go long hair and he said and I got earrings and one of my buddies goes you gotta get you I had to fill a requirement for my business degree which I was going for and I was to take an arts class and so I my buddy goes just get high and do theater dude you just go there and be a tree <laughs> so I took a theater class um, as my mom had wanted me to my entire life, and then I was like, "Oh, this is where I live." Was your mom into the acting? Yeah, my mom. My, both my parents were. My father was the general manager of the NBC affiliate in San Francisco. My mom was a Stanford grad with a um, English major, and a, she was. They were just funny people that liked show business, and they used to go see comedy all the time in San Francisco. They used to go to the Purple Onion. And they saw. Phyllis Diller and Bill Cosby early days and Newhart and so they were really into that kind of stuff they didn't listen to music really I mean we had some Beatles records or whatnot but my parents were really into comedy and so they were interested in me getting into theater so when I actually changed my major they were pretty so stoked see that's so funny because so many times it's different like, the opposite. Go, it's like wait a second because my degree is in business I, I it, think my parents realized I have a limited skill set and that that would probably be the place where it would be applied so they were like pleased that I chose it and, and once I got in the theater department my world just changed now did you start getting uh, musical plays or all kinds of plays because can you you sing because you're in a band I you know I don't really sing very well I play guitar I, I'm a good band leader I I like fonts. I like to put the poster together. I like getting the outfits. I okay. the first I'm the first time I got a guitar. I was like, let's get pants. Like I, that's the way I think of it. I like the whole deal. Like if you're if you're in a band and you don't have the whole package, I can't go with it. I, if there's not outfits and a, and a really good font and some sort of artistic integrity to it, then I can't I can't do it. Um, so I I started um, I can act. I was acting. You know, it was it was, it was it was a classical theater program. So it was a lot of Shakespeare and Sheridan and that kind of stuff. Um, and I also um, was the only straight guy, one of the only straight guys in the department, and I knew where to get pot. So <laughs> that's, that was sort of my, that was how I sort of made my way through the theater department. It's so funny you say that because we had a great theater department in my high school. I wasn't involved in, and I'm the same age as you. And back then, you know, no one was openly gay. And right. looking back now, you go, okay, well, that guy was wearing leg warmers. Oh, you know, another guy sure. weren't doing that. Yes. And when you think back, and it's like, now I think back, I'm like, God, you know, I should have gotten involved in that because it was such a good we had such a Cherry Hill East had such a great you know theater program and a great yeah. thing and you look back at it now and you're like damn that would have been fun you know when you look at it back oh no yeah yeah I mean I'm so grateful and I and, and you know I talk about my friend the guy who had the Clash record He so he, he lived in the same dorm as the girl that would be my girlfriend for the first three years of college and his name was Larry and Larry was like from uh, Ashland, Oregon and he had a twin brother and he had the greatest record collection and he dressed really well he wore beads and you know he just was like kind of punk but also kind of hippie it was just cool it was just cool as shit well of course you know three years into college all of a sudden we're like oh right Larry's gay <laughs> which in a way was sort of I, I felt cheated because I was like oh a straight guy that likes the same shit that I do but at the same time that was important for me that was a very important part of my life because as you know because we are the same age um, you know AIDS hit the shore hard and we were all we all lived in a house together as five guys and Larry was one of the guys and we found out with well, the day we found out that he was gay which was because we found out that the guy he was seeing girl he was seeing was actually a guy long story um you know people a couple of guys in the house panicked we're like we got to get him out of here we got to we don't you, he fucking don't throw your toothbrushes out like right. it really was like well, somebody had the plague and you know of course i was the uh, me and the one other guy were the like he's fine he's a you know i'd read up in rolling stone on aids right. i sort of understood it but um but also you know um it, uh, not everyone that was gay had aids i know that's the thing and it's so funny when you talk about that cuz you know i haven't thought about that but you're right back then because it was it was crazy. I mean, there was it was fanaticism. I mean, it, when AIDS, you know, now it's if someone has AIDS, okay, Magic Johnson, you know, has HIV. But back then, it was like, oh my god, it was a dense, it was a death yeah. sentence. And the problem with it was, was they were catching it so late. So so many people that had it uh, were so far gone that nothing would have, you know, we they, they catch it now and they can hold it at bay, right? Uh, apparently, very well. You know what I mean? Which is great. That doesn't mean it's not a, a, a not a, a worthy cause worth fighting. It you know it, in, in in certain parts of the world it's still devastating. But it 
it really was like you know Keith Haring and like I remember when Ricky Wilson of the B-52s died and he was one of the first open like he was gay and he died of AIDS and then Rock Hudson like it was this really dark hard thing like being gay at that point in time was very tough because it wasn't just a thing that you were like gay and sort of an outsider you were perceived as being diseased you know in some ways you know what i mean which is really like add that to on top of not socially socially acceptable yeah i mean it was a crazy time so yeah so you found out this guy your your buddy was gay yeah and you're like, well, that's cool though. He's hip. Like, he was great. And I, you know, I grew up in San Francisco, so I knew about gay. I just didn't. It wasn't in my world. Right. It was like we used to go to the theater a lot. My parents were my parents were conservative, compassionate. The actual description of compassionate conservatives. My parents were, you know, they didn't have a problem with homosexuals, black, any of that stuff. My parents were really cool. They just had money and they didn't want to get rid of it. <laughs> so <laughs> truly, that's truly. It was all about taxes, but. Um, uh, but so I understood it. I just didn't understand it. Does that make sense? Yeah. I knew I was okay. I knew it was okay. You were you were at the doorfront. You just weren't going in. Right. You but weren't. when I had a friend, it was a whole different world. And if I found myself, I got an you know I I got in a fight with a you know I beat somebody else up one night because of a thing we got in with him. You know, like I suddenly was defending it and being a part of it, and then I was immersed in it. And I think it gave me a real a real understanding and a real compassion for it. Whereas before, I was just okay with it, but it was over there. Right. It's kind of like you do your thing, I'll do mine, man. And now I'm like, no, man, we got to be friends. We got to help. You know what I mean? That kind of deal. So he, you know, but he was he turned into music. So then, did you graduate college? Yes. So I graduated from the University of Oregon and uh, uh, and went and then went back to San Francisco and started um, uh, trying to get jobs as an actor. Okay. Now, when did you start doing comedy? And did that? How did that come about? So comedy. So what happened was I couldn't find any work as an actor and I wasn't a great actor and my mother once again uh, was she would read uh, Backstage West or whatever it was called the the, the you know the drama, magazine drama log yes act, right this. that's what it was drama log and she was like there's an improv group that's auditioning you should try out for it and I was like oh, get off my back so I went and auditioned for this uh, improv group and I got in it and one of the members of the group was Margaret Cho and Margaret said you're hilarious you should try stand up and I had thought about it you know because I was always you know you when you're kind of funny you're always kind of funny and so i was always kind of funny and but then i i used to all my the thing with me was my dad was really funny my mother was funny my sister is hilarious and all of my friends were funny so i never felt like i was different like my friends are fucking like my regular friends with real regular jobs and live in the bay area are hilarious genuinely hilarious but so i just figured that's just just how people are so I never saw myself as being special but when I got in this group they were like give it a shot and I went and I did an open mic at the Holy City Zoo and then I was like I'm home baby it was exactly like finding the theater department over again see that's crazy so you start doing it and like and San Francisco was such a cool scene at that time it was really neat because we caught it so there was you know there was the comedy boom and then there was the end of the comedy boom which I was on in Philly towards the end it was like me and Paul Tompkins and yeah, Adam yeah, McKay and yeah, right. all those guys we we had missed the huge money yes. but, but we, we still like it's a feature you could still make six to eight hundred to nine hundred a week but, that's right but before that it was like features were making like nine hundred for the weekend so it was, right. it was one of those things where we missed it but there was still a shitload of work out there there was work and then there was but then there was also you know um there was a a real and it's so funny you mentioned Tompkins there was a real concerted effort to not be like the group of comics that came before right so I ended up in that crew of people like when I was in San Francisco everyone was there when I started it was me and it was Cho and it was Patton showed up and Marin was there for a while and Kapatch was there and Posehn was there and Tony Kameen and Alex Reed and um, Dana Gould was there and then he left and then Cross and Janine and uh, used to come and just stay in San Francisco with us and Benson like everybody sort of came to San Francisco because there was such a huge com- community. Kevin Gatoka like there were so many people that everyone just sort of hung out there and then even would go back to Los Angeles where they lived or whatever. And eventually, the way it sort of worked out was Ben Stiller got his show and hired Janine and David. And then Patton decided to move down there and Posehn, and they both got hired on Mad TV, and then we just all went. We just all went. We were all friends, and we were like, we're all going to L.A. So you weren't really doing stand-up that long before you moved five. in? Five. Okay, five. Five years, and I was still in a band. I was in a band called The New Sheridans, and I was very serious about music. 
Now, how would you split the time? Because it must be hard because both are night jobs. I just found a way, you know. We didn't play, I mean... I don't know. I wasn't. Yeah, I just. We just. You know. I. I. I you kind of couldn't. I kind of at one point had to finally make a decision. You know. It was, they're both. You're sort of a lifer if you're going to do one or the other. And the music thing. Uh, after a couple, like we went to Los Angeles and we recorded a single and uh, with the uh, Steve McDonald Red Cross produced our single and we put it out and and then nothing happened and the band broke up and I got sober and then I was like I'm just going to do comedy so you started doing comedy and then now when did you foray into writing because I know you were, wrote for Sex in the City did they had they seen your act or how did they so what happened was is that I so I was a part of the alternative comedy scene here in Los Angeles where um, we would do sets at a place called the Uncabaret right and the Uncabaret was uh, Beth Lapidus who's just a brilliant producer she was on the show a, a while yeah, yeah. ago just so many good stories oh my god she's amazing she's really really an interesting awesome person and so she had this show and she would say look you can't come in here and do your act if you want to do your act there's clubs all over come in and just share just share as comedians but share whatever your life or what happened this week or a story from your childhood but don't come in and do your act and a lot of guys bristled at that but um, it worked for me that's where I learned how to do stand up that's where I learned how to really be who I am and um and so Cross and Odenkirk and Julia Sweeney and Kathy Griffin and, you know, the, the, the Jack Black and all those folks. So um, Michael Patrick King was one of the guys who was a comic there. And um, I got an HBO special and he I saw that. It was, uh, called Mantastic. You were in a black shirt, I think. No, yeah, black yeah, t-shirt. I, I saw it a long, while back. Yeah, so yeah. That was more, you were storytelling more. It was more of a storytelling thing. It was based on my sets at the Cabaret. Michael Patrick King directed it. Okay. And HBO asked him to direct it. And then they hired him to be the executive producer of Sex and City. <clears throat> and then um, about a year after that, Michael asked me to come on board and be a consultant. So I was consulting at Sex and the City. Now, were you the only male? Or I was the only straight guy on the okay. staff. Yeah, yeah. Seven women and two gay men. So how was that? Where I mean, did, did they sit there and say, ah, you know, uh, you're not right? I mean, it must be weird because it, it's a it's a clashing because well, you're the outsider. I think so, but I think I think the reason they wanted their, me there was that, like they wanted to authenticate and be able to say we're doing this right, right? This is because if you haven't had an like uh, if I haven't had an experience as a gay man, I'm going to say to a gay man, would, does this ring true to you, or am I stereotyping, or am I? whatever and so yeah and also i just had a good head for relationships and um and i really liked the girls and they all really liked me so it was really pretty fun it was a fun thing to be that guy and be able to say you know i don't think aiden would that makes him too much of a pussy right you right. know uh <laughs> and i think they were doing such a great job they really didn't need my help but i but i just became a part of the staff as anyone's a part of the staff you just have experiences that's all Mike, michael would do that's all real good tv shows do is just take everyone's experiences and put them on television you know tell me something that we would talk about sex and all that stuff and because we had such a progressive show you know um it was really just sitting around with women talking about masturbating like it was <laughs> it was pretty great you know what's funny about that show and you know because it's, it was a while back when that came out I and mean, the younger people for, weren't around then that show was giant i mean in the women community it was i mean i mean you think about it you know there'd be a drink on sex in the city and then the next week oh everyone's drinking mojitos or it was just amazing right. no it, they would it was, yeah it was a it, it sat there and really absolutely culture they, it did push culture and it broke style and it broke um uh and it also it tackled some of the real like it tackled some of the real sexual issues that m nobody else was tackling and and how women felt about them and so you know, it was an it was also an easy show for people. You know, it's sort of like I find this to be really true, and part of why there, there's so much sexism. It was also a really easy show to put down, um, or to just toss off as a bunch of girls, as though like a show with a bunch of guys is okay. Right. You know, they do that with the View. I'm not saying the View is great, but boy, they put that thing down hard. Man, they take those women down as though they're fucking idiots. Like it's, it's and you think it's started by Barbara Walters, who's like the most. And I mean, I, I see, you know, you see they, interviews they, with her. She's amazing. They just have, yeah, you know, people just put this cloud in front of it and you go, you know, I've been on it a couple times. And uh, Whoopi is, like, whether you think she's funny or not, she's super smart and she's super opinionated and she's fun to watch and so is Rosie. And it's, 
it's it's just as valid as any anything else. So anyway, so Sex and City was the same thing. It was just as valid as anything else. Yes, there were some archetypes, and yes, some of the jokes were corny, and not all of it was my favorite thing in the world, but it wasn't for me. And I think what it did for women, um, and also what it did just for the industry to say, here's a show that's just for women. That's it. Then there's guys in here, and they're important, but they're not. They're the second team. And I think that uh, was a cool show, you know? And the thing also is, it was just funny. I mean, when you watch it, I mean, it, it's, it's a funny show. I mean, yeah. if, if you're... If you're, uh, I, had, I'm not, I don't want to say open-minded, but if you sit there and you look past, it's just women, because I know exactly the people, oh, you know, that's, I'm not going to watch that, you know, it's a bunch of broads. But if you're past that, yes. you sit down and watch it and you go, God damn, there's some gems. I mean, that's laugh out loud funny. Yeah, there was some really good stuff in there. There was some very, very smart stuff about how life works out there. Some very interesting, obviously we hit those, you know, those, um, they used to call them water cooler moments with the guy and the post-it you know breaking up on the post-it and the he's just not that indie thing which was uh, just sort of evolved out of a conversation and then made it into the series and then it was like a thing that people sort of like you know they clicked you know you could just feel something click you know and that was also a time when when it just doesn't feel like anymore we're having a shared experience you know even if we're all talking about it we didn't all watch it at the same time you know i was in that 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 show was on sunday nights and everybody watched it on sunday night and everybody talked about it on monday and it was also the in the old days where they used to actually run credits at the end so the credits i had my own card so my name would come up and i got way more accolades for that than almost anything i'd ever done before really? i'd already i'd shot two specials already but then my name on the on the tail end of that show but you know gave me a career it's amazing yeah. so from that you wrote the book now how did that come about so that was super simple and easy like one, one day we were at work and and i was on a break and one of the girls said i want to talk to you about a relationship problem or, you know we were just friends just like if you'd said to me out of this can i ask you a question about my girlfriend or whatever so i said yeah sure you know um, what's going on and she said you know we've been seeing this guy we've been going out and you know we hold hands whatever blah 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 but last night i invited him to come up to have sex and he said no do you think that's bad? And I, you know, I, as I've said in the retelling of this, I had two options. I could lie to her or I could tell her what I thought, which is, yes, terrible. I know. What guy's turning it <laughs> right, down? That, like when we, yeah, I mean, when we like somebody in that way, that's what you're, you're driving towards that. It doesn't, that's not the only goal, but it's definitely, it's definitely part of the engine. And, um, and so... Uh, she said, I know, but he calls me all the time. He, he's like, I go, yeah, but he's just not that into you. Like, if he likes you, he, like, he likes you, but not enough to go the distance, which is, you know, what you want. I'd, why would you settle for something shitty? So then it made it into the writer's room, and then it ended up on an episode, and we talked about it quite a bit. And then, and then, the, and then Liz Chichillo, who's the co-author of the book, she was the one that said, I actually think there's a book idea in this. I was like, a pamphlet maybe that you... Yeah, that must have been weird for you because it's just something that came off your head. And being a comic, it's just right. something that... You, and you're speaking your truth and, you know... So, I mean, for a book, you're probably going, well, what the, you know, what the hell is this well, book? Well, I didn't, I didn't quite understand how... Like, I'm like, I'm not going to... I don't want to write a book and tell women what's what. Like, I, that seems presumptuous. But the way she explained it was, oh, we'll ask you questions. And you'll just answer questions. You're not saying anything other than this is what I think this is what I think I'm responding to your question I'm not telling you just you know so it was fun it was really fun and easy to write and it came together super super quick there are those things in life sometimes where you go uh oh this feels different than anything I've done before this thing is moving we sold the book pretty quick we made it really we wrote it really quick and then even before Oprah it was selling and it got a nice review from the Washington Post and the Chicago Tribune and it was moving and then we were on Oprah and then it was all bets are off that must be I just when you sit there you know, you're, you're a kid playing guitar in college and now you're on the best sellers list I mean that's something you probably never envisioned not at all and that's the great thing about show business careers and why people should never quit is like you just don't know where it's taking you you know there's a there's a there's so many different facets to where your career can go so if you're like I just want to be an actor you're gonna be in trouble the same with being just anything but if you open yourself up to the idea that you're a creative you're just a creative and you can you can be used in a million different ways your brand as such your or your which is just your your being can be funneled into a lot of different things if you allow it to be so i which i didn't think i didn't feel this way at the time by the way this is in retrospect when you think about it, we're we're, we're con our job is we're content providers and the right. content can be in any different as you said any different area and that's what we're here to do when you're creative you produce content if right. i do this show it's content if i write a book that's content and that's right. the thing that happens and don't people a lot of people don't see that right well i think the world's more open to it now but at the time they kind of weren't and so i all of a sudden went from being i had built put 15 years into my comedy career at this point and i had two specials 
Um, no, uh, yeah, I had done two specials, two specials, and uh, and I've been a Conan, Letterman, and you know I've been on the the big three, and um, uh, yeah, Conan, Letterman, and uh, the Tonight Show, and all of a sudden I'm a relationship guy, and now that's the only way the world is willing to see me, and so. That was d- difficult because I would go do stand-up shows and they would sell out, but it would all be women expecting advice. And I, you know, that wasn't what my stand-up was. Yeah, that, that it never helped. was. Because I actually bristle at that kind of comedy. Like, relationship comedy as stand-up to me is too, I don't know, it's just not my it's not my brand. It's so funny that you say that because it's also like when some of these bands, you know, like like the bands that do the power ballads, that CD. Yeah. Like people hear that and they go, oh, wow, okay, if I go back when they're around, when I, if I see Warrant, they're not going to play. But then Warrant's actually the good guitarist, like Uncle Tom's Cabin and all sure. They're good guitars, but you sit there oh, and yeah. people sit there and go, oh, oh, that's pussy pop. You know, and it's like, oh, no, yeah. And that's what happens. So you guys, I mean, so women were probably thinking, oh, he's going to talk about sex and this. Oh, yeah. I thought it was going to be like a whole show about you going, oh, relationships. And they're probably like, what the hell? What the hell? Yeah. Just, what the hell did I say? Hey, right. It was a little bit of that. It was a little bit like, and also we're going to, you know, get together and have Cosmos and bash men, and that's not wasn't the thing. And sometimes women liked it. You know, I mean, it. it I think everyone liked it because I'm a good comic, but I they didn't come back. You know what I mean? Like it didn't. It didn't. Um, it didn't. My standup didn't catch on, and then I was sort of stuck with a non-comedy crowd because people that like my comedy were like well I'm not I don't want to go see relationships because they didn't know either so they're like I'm not going to go this is he's changed so you know had it been now during the internet and I and I'd also had a podcast at the time or whatever then I would be able to sort of play the field and go well that's just a thing I do and then I do this over here and I do this here so it was a it was a blessing and a curse at the same time because once that sort of ran its cycle I was done and I got a talk show, which which uh, 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 is sort of like the crown jewel of any comedian's career. And then what? when that's over, you're what else are they going to give you? Well, the talk show was yeah. more of a a vice show. What's that? Was your talk show more of an advice show, wasn't it? it was, I mean, yeah, well, they can't do it relationships every day, so it was sort of, um, I, I call it punk rock Ricky Lake. Like, <laughs> They wanted me to be, I was funny, because I was like, I would like to, like, I want to cut my hair and wear suits, and they are like, no, 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 man, you got to be the guy with the vests, and we put your hair and blah, 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 and I agreed. I was like, okay, I'll get it. Um, and so uh, the show didn't really have an identity, you know, uh, until kind of towards the end. Um, and it was a fun experience and a good experience, and, and, and those things are really hard. You know, I, I have this, um, I'm, st- I'm trying to start a club of guys who've had daytime talk shows for a year, because uh, I ran into... Um, Mark Wahlberg? Uh, no, not Mark Wahlberg, <laughs> but uh, the other guy, you know, uh, uh, from uh, um, from Survivor. Uh, shit, he's such a great guy. Um, uh, not Richard Hatch, no. No, no, no. Um, the, the host oh, of Survivor. Oh, uh, Probst. Jeff, no, not... Uh, Jeff Probst. Jeff Probst. The nicest guy, the greatest guy, such a good guy. And I ran into him at the backstage at a Foo Fighters thing because I'm, I'm sort of vaguely familiar with uh, uh, friends with Dave. And he was like, you had a talk show for one year. I had a talk show for one year. And we just went through this, you know, and then I talked to Kirk Fox the other day. He goes, I had a talk show for one That's year. That's funny. That, that'd, be, so, that'd be perfect. That'd be a great reality it show. It would be really fun. Just a bunch of guys sitting around talking about their show for one year. It's a it's a tough thing to do daytime daytime television just in general. And, and so you, and you sort of get the fact that like the people that are good at it, See, the thing about it was is I didn't have a point of view with the show, but I had a point of view with the book. I knew exactly what the book was. I knew exactly where I stood. I knew exactly what I wanted to say. I knew exactly what I didn't want to say. I knew what I would take responsibility for and what I wasn't going to worry about. With the talk show, I was like, I don't know who to be. I don't know what this is. I don't know what I'm doing, except I want to be on television, and you've offered me a lot of money, and it took me eight months to say yes, and I finally said yes. But then when it was over, and this is not a personal thing, uh, show business is like, well, what else do you want? We gave you a talk show. You had a book. Like, go away. <laughs> well, yeah. What, 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 why did it take you so long? Why did it take you eight months to decide to do the show? Because I didn't, I didn't want, I didn't like daytime television, but n- nobody else was offering me a job. Okay. You know, Comedy Central was like, we don't, your, your thing is not our thing. And they, everyone said, this, your thing is relationships and that kind of stuff. So... I finally was like, well, maybe I can do something with this. You know, sometimes you're like, the universe wants this, so I'm going to do this. And, you know, I had a good time doing it, but um, because I like working in, I like working in television. Um, I like being in a big crew. I like having a job to go to every day. Like, that's very satisfying and, you know, knowing that there's money. Um, but, 
but it just ultimately didn't work. You know, it's funny the daytime TV. I don't know if you remember. You remember a guy named Richard Bay? Yeah, I remember him. He was in Philadelphia, and I still remember one night he had just gotten like fired, and I saw him. There was this bar called Polo Bay. It's when you could smoke in, in bars, and he's sitting there, and he had like dressed like the Miami Vice with like a tank, you know, like the whole yeah, 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 and his hair chest hanging, and and he just he looks so pathetic. He felt so bad because you know he's sitting there going, "Yeah, I'm Richard Bay," but everyone knew he got fired. And that's what I always thought about daytime TV because we would watch him. Then he was on Secaucus Nine, and you're like, "God, I wonder, I wonder what happened to him." He, that's a guy you should look up. That right? Well, I mean, it's it's. It's also like a world where, while I had a talk show, and some people know it, most people don't even know. Like most, that it's so subterranean that people kind of go, Ellen, some judges, Dr. Phil, I uh, guess Rachel Ray's still there. Like they don't really know. It, it gets no play in the press. It gets no play in the world. I mean, Oprah was such a, an anomaly and such a powerhouse and such a class act and was able to literally gather an army and bring it to another level you know she's just an institution and just the cruelest um and i probably should have just been i should have just kept doing oprah's because i'm great when someone's asking me a question but i don't want to be asking people questions i find not that i i just i think it's a great art form you know what i mean i listen to so many podcasts and i listen to people and i go "Ah, you're good at that that is good i i i can have a conversation with people but if i'm i really interviewing people is an art see i've learned just because interviewing just because I listen. You know, that's the thing. Yeah. I've learned. I do my research. And so many people come in and say, wow, you know, you actually looked us up. I mean, because some people say yes. they've been on nightmares where they go in and the person doesn't, you know, true, I go to Wikipedia. Sometimes it's wrong. Well, you no, know? it's not. But, but, it's, it's, but you have to know because I think it's, I mean, I love interviewing people just because the stories I hear. I mean, I've, I get a lot of character actors on the show and I just, I hear stories that just, you're amazed. And it's yeah. so funny. So many people who come on the show, you including, have, as you said, gone in so many different avenues of the career and then, you know, they people learn. It's not once you get one little break, that doesn't mean crap. I no, mean, you, you have to keep working and no. working. Yeah, there's this assumption just because it became a very household brand and it was a very big quote for a long time, and they made a movie and all that stuff that I'm like set for life, and I'm like not even, dude. Now you the know? movie, did you have input on that, or it was did you just did you, you know? Write it was, the script well, here's what happened. They they we um uh, we sold it to New Line, and they wrote us a very large check for it, and then they said we'll buy a script from you as well. So you and Liz write a script. So we wrote a script and they predictably tossed it out almost immediately. I think they kept a couple of the names and they but they but they but they um, then produced it with um, Flower Films and I knew um, uh, Drew, uh, uh, Drew, Drew well not but Drew's partner uh, who's now married to Jimmy Fallon um, and so she was very much trying to keep me and Liz included in it but we both said look just go make a movie like. You know, it's it, we, there, when, sometimes with that stuff, you just have to let go. And people were, were like, are you, you know, well, what if they mess up your book? I'm like, they, it's a self-help book, so it's right. hard to mess up. <laughs> also, it's a movie. It's not the book. And, you know, they're making a movie out of it. Do you get how great that is? Like, it's still, it's surreal, you know. And then they started telling us who the cast was going to be. And Nancy Javonen, by the way, is okay. the, who I'm talking about, married to, to Jimmy Fallon. Awesome lady. Awesome lady. Very, very, very bright. Uh, and very pretty. And um, uh, so, yeah, so we had very little input. I was in it, you know, Liz was in it. We both had little cameos. Mine was the most unwarranted cameo in the history of filmmaking. There's zero reason for me to be in it. <laughs> now, was that in your contract? I want to be in the movie? Or no, said- no, that was that was the director's. He put uh, the writers in. He put, you know, he put everybody in involved in the movie. It was very sweet. It was very sweet. Um, acting is not my gig. I mean, I would do it. I, I think I'm more open to it now than I ever have been, but it's not something I, I don't think about it. I don't jones it for it. I just worked on a show where I was a, where I directed and, um, and produced and I, I never, ever thought I should be in front of the camera. When I was directing people, I had such a good time doing that. I so enjoy watching other actors work. I get such a kick out of watching two people take something that you think is okay and turn it into something magical that you never even thought was there. Like this, like it's like finding little veins of gold in like an idea that you had that was okay that two actors turn into something. And I go, that's I like that more than the idea that I'm finding the gold. I'd rather put someone out there to find the gold and then see if I can capture it. No, is that the first thing you directed? First thing. And so how did you come about doing that? It was a relationship show for Oxygen and they were, um, it was um, It was called, my. it's called My Crazy Love and it's a re- relationship recreation show. Uh, and they hired the folks, the folks that uh, actually created it, um, created um, celebrity ghost stories. So it's that kind of a deal. Someone tells a, f- 
you know, a camera, you know, a first person to camera story about something that they did, like pretend to be deaf for three months to go out with a guy. And then we recreate it in sort of romantic comedy thing. So they said, we need a comedy expert. So that was who they hired. So I went back to New York. I lived there for 22 weeks by myself in Brooklyn and, um, and learned how to direct. I directed most of the second unit stuff and a little bit of a team and then, uh, and then just stood behind the director. And then I would, you know, say, why don't we have him do this? Why don't we have him do that? And, See that, that that would be I mean that's just, once again the creative force you know you, so you, fun. Didn't, you didn't think you who I mean as if things you fell in, I always say it's amazing that people fall into stuff yes because it's like someone says okay you know he's hanging out he does a good job well just let him do it you know it's like you find with a lot of actors you well know, they're yeah. on a show and they go hey you know what? I want to I, I want to direct one oh, yes not now not now but then they go you know yeah right well it's also like people I think people forget you know there there are there are two different types of people I think in in Hollywood there is that um uh you know um archetype the asshole self seat you know there's there is that person um but for the most part it, there's just a lot of good people that want to work with other people and the better a person you are the better shot you have at doing something because most of us aren't superstars so we um uh, aren't just going to get there on just our talent so being a good person really does make a difference you know i think uh, uh, I'm, I'm sure you know Mark Marin. Nobody could tell you this better than Mark. I mean, Mark's whole problem, being very talented his entire career, is a dick. And nobody liked him. No one wanted to be around him. He wasn't worth the time, regardless of how handsome, funny, or talented he was. He was like, this guy's just the worst. I can't do it. I can't do an hour with him. And then, you know, he comes around full circle, and you see the difference. Now everybody wants to work with Mark, and Mark seems like a, has been a very he's changed. And so... That for show business, I think is super important, you know, um, and also the idea that like you don't have to be a superstar to have a great time in this business. Right. You know, there's so much to do. Now, when when your show got canceled, the talk show when it ended. Yes. Now you went back into stand up. Now, did you have to sort of reinvent yourself because as you did, people have you labeled as that relationship guy, and you're saying I'm not that guy. It, I'm sure you wanted to hit the clubs again. I did, and I and I, but I was still pretty like. You know, my 15 minutes wasn't up then, so it was still, and the movie hadn't come out. So that kind of kept the ball going, you know. So from about 2006 to 2009, it was still, even though the talk show was over, still, he's just not that indie, he's just not that indie, he's just not that indie. The book was still massive, and so it was one of those things where, like, I couldn't beat it. I quit a couple times because I got so frustrated. What do you um, mean quit? Just the biz? Yeah, I just quit show business. No, not show business, stand up. Okay. I got in a fight with a girl one night. I was in. Uh, it's a very long story. I, I actually tell it on stage. But I I was uh, working at uh, Caroline's and it was a Thursday night and it was a mostly I think it was about two thirds full, and a bachelorette party and they're very difficult and they were there clearly they had they had cosmos and mojitos and they'd come for that kind of comedy and that was I was doing a bit about I was talking about museums and crisp angel and whatever I was on about crackers. I like to talk about food a lot. And they weren't digging it. And this one girl wouldn't stop talking. She just wouldn't stop talking. At one point, I said to her, I go, look, just, are you, do you like my books? And she said, I do. And I go, have you read my new book? Could you just shut your fucking mouth? <laughs> <laughs> so we can all enjoy the show. And it got no laughs. And then, and then, so then I went over and I started doing this bit. And it's a long bit. And it ends big. And there was no, there was silence afterwards. Because this girl was talking the whole time. People couldn't take her eyes off of her. And she goes, boo. And I snapped. And I just walked over very calmly and got in her face very calmly and said, I hate you. I go, I have <laughs> been doing this. And here's the, here's the weird thing. It was 20 years to the day wow. that I'd started stand-up. I've been doing this for 20 years. This is the worst show I've ever had. Now, I'll bounce back because I'm a pro. But these people should have burned their money in the parking lot. You ruined the night for everyone because you're selfish and I hate you. <laughs> well, then... She starts crying, which is horrible. And I don't know what to say because I've just spit my load. I have nothing to do. I'm just staring at her. And she then she reaches into her purse and she pulls out a copy of He's Just Not That Into You and like holds it up like a torch. And she starts saying, you were supposed to talk about this book. And you were, you know, she was like, you, we ruined our night. I don't know what your comedy is all about. You're terrible. And she's crying. And then it just goes to this other place about how she had just been dumped and she's never going to find anybody it got weird dude wow. and the only thing i had going for me was that she kept <laughs> like she's this horrible snorting and crying <laughs> your voice was like this even though she's super pretty she's like that and finally a guy from across the room goes well no wonder nobody will fuck you you know what i mean <laughs> and then i'm like dude no please but also thank you and then another guy stands up and says i'll fuck her and so then 
I said, thank you, good night. And I literally, you know, it was still, it was like, I don't know, you know, 10 o'clock in New York. I called my manager, who's still at work, and I said, you got to take me off the road. I can't do this. I can't go out and perform for people who aren't interested in seeing what I, it's just killing me right. on the inside. And they're not getting what they want. Nothing, nobody's winning in this situation, and it's killing me because I, I just want to be a stand-up. And so at that point, I started playing music again, and I got into. I started a band called the Rainy Monarchs, which is a surf band. I didn't want any words, no words, no lyrics, no lyricist, no talking, no diva, just just straight up surf instrumental ska reggae stuff, because I needed an outlet that was like that you just couldn't shoot holes in, and that would just, that had no. I picked something almost that was like this has no commercial appeal this there's nothing nobody goes to see surf bands i don't know if people buy their records but this is the kind of music i like i'm gonna go do something that really just makes me happy on the inside and has no outcome to it now how do you find a surf band because you always see like because it's a very seems like there's not a lot of people playing surf music when you want to put a band together and you have this idea to play surf do you sit there and go okay i know this guy he likes surf music. you know what it was i actually told my guitar before before this had started i my guitar teacher who was also a, a good friend uh, my buddy mike who played in a band called Letters to Cleo? He um, he he record. I said I want to record a song to walk on stage to. So I wrote this instrumental that sort of bolero esque called Fanfare for a Well Dressed Man, and um, and then he asked me if I had any more songs, and I was like, Well, I have this and this, and we recorded them. And then he goes, I want to be your partner in this. Like let's let's make records. And so because it wasn't just surf, and then he knew everybody, and that my drummer plays for. Melissa Etheridge. Like okay. everyone that's ever played in my band has been, or like we've had a bunch of drummers live, like my buddy Wood or Dwight Yoakam or whatever. So, you know, I just found musicians through him. And, um, uh, and it was just a nice thing. It was just a thing that just wasn't comedy. Now, the, you know, also truth be told, I didn't realize it at the time, but I also struggle with depression and anxiety. And I didn't realize that because... I'd become an authority figure in some way and a person who writes self-help books, so there's no way I need help. But right. I was really, really in bad shape. Like, I started to, I got to the hear voices part, you know, like of, you know, not being able to read, like not being able to complete a thought. Now that must be really tough one because you're creative and plus, you know, you know, when you're, I mean, how did you deal with that? What did you do? Did you see? Well, I made or? some. I made some. I had been sober for a long time, and I made some bad choices. One Christmas, I was very, very, very much on the edge of maybe wanting to Robin Williams my way out of here, and I, um, I decided to take the the dog. That we had two aged dogs. Um, they were like uh, German shepherds, and um, they both took hydrocodone for their hips, and I took one of those, and that solved the problem. <laughs> And then I got addicted to those, and then I had to stop that, and then I went to see a real therapist and a psychiatrist, and then I got put on regular, me real meds, and they've saved my life. Now, have, now a lot of times people say it, it screws with their creativity. Have you noticed any difference? Here's the thing, and I, I find that interesting. I feel like the problem with meds is that people aren't taught how to use them, because what they do is they just slow everything down, but they don't ruin it. They just don't make you that psyched up. Like, if I have to be like this to entertain, I'm going to die. Like, that can't be where my creative juices come from. Um, what it does allow me to do is when I decide to think about comedy, my brain allows me to do it and doesn't shoot down ideas right away. And suddenly I'm able to write more and be more focused and come up with stuff and, and, be, able, and be gentle with myself and be able to go, well, this will be good and we'll give it a shot. And if it doesn't work, we'll come back and we'll try it again. Um, so I've actually found it. Uh, 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 made me way more creative. I can learn guitar. I can learn instrumental pieces all by myself without anyone teaching me by myself. I could never do that. You're probably like, more patient. That's probably what it is. Your mind is more patient where a guitar, you're like, yes. I got I to I flat. Now you're like, okay, I'm not going to play this riff in... 10 minutes but I'm going to take the time yeah. and learn it and because I know when, we're, when you're frantic not frantic but when you're, you sit there and you go if, if I don't finish this if I you know that's why I never played musician, music when I was younger I was like every song I played I, I thought it sounded like something but it didn't but right. I was like I didn't have the patience to sit there and learn where I know from, like a good friend of mine is a great guitarist he the guy practices like all the Two time, hours every day, and just. sometimes you have the notes wrong for days, and sometimes it just sometimes you just have to stop working on that song, and you come back and it's there in your hands the next time. It's just sort of a miracle, and 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 also, you know, when you hear those stories, like I mean, Keith Richards and those guys, like I listened to records all day. I picked the songs out all day. That's all they did. They sat down and they actually did that. We only hear the finished product. We don't know how hard the struggle was, but it's hard for everybody. So, um, 
uh, I just started, the pills, the, the meds that I'm on, uh, allow me just to give myself a break and also not to react to things so dramatically. So I find that for me, it's not a matter of being happy. It's me not being unhappy. Okay. I don't wake up mad or scared. I can take, if, if my wife says something to me that would normally irritate me, I can just let it roll for a minute. I can still feel it a little bit. But then I go, there's no reason to react to this. This is just let it go. And, or I can say, you know what? In a very calm voice, we got to talk about this because that bothers me. And I don't want to, let's just figure out how to get through it. So they've just changed my whole way of being. And, um, uh, and that's been great. But I can see where somebody would miss the hyperactive highs or the, but then there's those epic lows. Right. And I just don't have those. I feel like I'm living in a pretty, um, real you know like a uh, like i'm living in reality and i'm living in the i'm, I'm it allows me to be much more in the moment now you're, you're doing stand-up again yes I, I actually ran into you at the airport like a year and a half ago i was before my girlfriend moved out here i was bi-coastal for two years and you were i because I, I have an idiot savant memory and uh, i had sent emails back to you about right. the show and it didn't yes happen, but you were i was on a virgin flight from philly and you were coming from fort lauderdale and we were at the same uh Oh right, kind of thing. I said, hey, I said, hey, man, I, you know, and so that's just weird. I, right, so you, were- I, so I've been doing stand up for a while, and um, uh, and I'm doing, I'm doing less of it, uh, because I, um, partly because I want a career change, and so I can't, I can't change my career unless I change my career. So, because I don't want to do stand-up for the next 10 years of my life. You know, I, I don't want to be 62 going to clubs. And that's not anything wrong with being 62 and going to clubs. But most guys that are 62 are going to theaters because they're that right. good. And the guys that are going 62 and going to clubs, that's not the life I want. And I don't want to be away from my family as right. much as I am. Well, I always say the road is for young guys. I, I'm going to be honest. I mean, but back, I mean... It, where when you get older, you know, like you have you have to watch what you eat. You have to do. I mean, it's just the road. Is yes, a- and I also think it's just too much. So it's for me, it's too much alone time. It's just too much alone. Sundays, those shitty Sundays where you're waiting for that Sunday show that no one's going to go to. It's it's hard, and I don't have that. Um, it's not more. It's not more exciting to me than being at my house with my pa- with my girls and my guitars. <laughs> you know, it's not more exciting to me than trying to figure out if I can turn somebody else into a star. If I can work on something. If I can create something with some people. It's not more interesting to me. But the idea of doing a a, a one man sh- sort of punk rock cabaret show, you know, something that's got storytelling and guitar playing, and it's definitely different. Like, I mean, I'm trying to think in different ways of how to perform my comedy so that it's. Also more interesting because I don't want to push myself to be Bill Burr. You know what I mean? Like, the guy, like there's guys like Bill and Louie and them that are like they hit that other level. Right. And then there's just, I mean, I don't know if you've looked behind us, but good lord, are there a lot of comics? Well, out here, there's. I mean, I it's, sit there. It's it's amazing. I mean, when I was in Philadelphia, at the open mics, there was like. 25 of us mm-hmm. and that was it you know and then and then that's right and then there was you know moments but once we started working you know on the road then you'd come back and you'd get your slot but there was only like 10 of us like me and keith robinson and different yeah. people you know there was and now it's like i look on facebook there's three three thousand people that just have comedian in their name like which i never understand it's like comedian larry whatever i'm like right and everyone and the thing is none of these people like when we did it i think when we were younger we were aiming to get work i think out here a lot of them just do it like as like a social thing it's weird like i see some of these shows and it's like i'm gonna do all new stuff and they don't understand that you know you've been doing you have to hone that seven or eight minutes i just think it's a different animal now I was in a. I did a show the other night with these young guys, and there were some funny, pretty funny guys on there. But there was a lot of performing for each other, and there was a lot of. Um, it was very young, and so it was raw-ish and dirty a lot, and with less nuance and whatever. And there was some. I'm not putting it down, but my brain went, "Yeah, we did this already. What right. are we doing here?" Like. You'll go up, you'll do five minutes, people will like it, and ten minutes, whatever, people will like it, you're good at this. But what are you doing here? Like, what's the, you, this is not, this is not the next thing, you know? Um, it's good to, like, keep your chops going, and that kind of thing, but I did go, and also, there's one of these every ten blocks now. Right. You know, there's a guy with a great room, and th- and look, there are more funny people than ever, and that's because these kids grew up on comedy. They grew up with taste. They grew up watching and being able to see, 
yeah, with Dane Cook and whatever, and then growing up. I mean, a lot of these kids come up and go, I used to love you. My mom and dad love you. You know, I've been around long enough that, like, they saw my specials when they were sneaking and watching Comedy Central when they weren't supposed to. (laughs) And now they're comedians, and they're telling me that they love me, which is neat, because there's a whole new influx of people that come out to see me because they were like, "I, I remember you. But at the same time, it feels like there's it's something new has to happen at least for me you know and i also don't want to be the guy that's like these kids are like this right so you're just changing your i gotta what how do you what's the name sweater you ha- so the king sweater so uh i briefly went to japan and i was uh playing rockabilly and i and i uh i went there under the name the king swinger and they misprinted the poster okay. <laughs> That's funny. I has the you, king sweater, and I kept it. And then, and then I wear sweaters. And then Pat Oswald started calling me sweater, and um, because uh, I had a podcast for a while with my buddy Dave Anthony called Walking the Room, which was very popular for a while, and really cool. And um, and Patton would write about us all the time, and he would call us call Dave Man Tits and and, and uh, Sweater Boy, or Sweater Girl. He would call me Sweater Girl. That's funny. the King Sweater. So that's sort of just my that's my my name. That's how I perform when I perform without the Reigning Monarchs, which is my band. I perform as the King Sweater. So now, what are you going to do in the next few months? What? So the next few months, I'm getting ready to go to Australia to do a one man show, which I'm going to do at the Melbourne Comedy Festival called I Am the King Sweater, which is about my trip to Japan. Will you play music in that? And I'll just... play music in it. Okay. I play three songs. I play a song that I wrote called Cake Box, which was uh, originally supposed to be on the um on the uh, pretty and pink soundtrack and then was taken off um uh so i had that sort of quick moment and and so that's what that show is about and then i'm also um trying to uh, write and direct a web series just for myself just to do it i just i have this idea and i'm hoping to get some about women's uh, women's rugby team at a uh, sort of a female animal house okay uh, about a misfit girls that play rugby at an all-girl uh, preppy college in the back east, and uh, that they're referred to as the war pigs, and it's not nice, and they're you know they're a bunch of misfit girls. I love women. I love I love the girls in comedy. So now it's Christmas. So you have big plans for the kids and the family. You do a lot of stuff. The, you know what? This is the best Christmas. We're not doing any. We're, the, we're literally tonight. The four of us are going to sit down, watch a movie, and bake. And then tomorrow, because every Christmas Eve we always have people over. And I love it. I love it. I love it. But this year it's just the four of us. And then we're going to go out to Vegas to see my uh, in-laws, who I love. It's good like that. Last year we had people over, and I was like, yeah, on Christmas. And then we're like, you know what? Tonight, make a dinner. My girlfriend's Italian. She's making lasagna tomorrow. We're yeah. just going to hang out. Yeah. I told my one buddy. I said, if you know, if you have nowhere to go. Come over and eat because you know Italians they cook yeah, a right, lot and right. lasagna is amazing. And uh, so, so now, what's your all your social media? How can people find all your information? Okay, so so Gregory Barrett, Gregory Full Gregory Barrett is my Twitter handle, and that's really my main thing. You know, uh, I'm Greg A Style on Instagram. I have a Facebook page. I'm not active on it um, because I just it, there's just too much. And what I have found is. Of the 25,000 people that I have as fans on my Blue Dot Facebook, I mean, uh, Twitter page, eight of them come to see me do comedy. You know what I mean? Like, I, I, I think there's a little myth in, like, you have to do it, you need to do it. I've, I, I'm, trying to find, I'm trying to find other ways to connect to people, and I think what I want is just people come see me live. I'm January 17th at Meltdown. I'm doing I Am the King Sweater for the first time in okay. Los Angeles. And that's on, uh, that's on Melrose? No. Hey, that's on uh, uh, Sun, um, uh, Guitar Center. What's the big... Oh, yeah, yeah Sunset. Sunset. I may have to check it out. I may come out to that, because I've yeah. been in Meltdown. I know they've lost oh, the great. Oh, it's great. So that's, that's cool. Great. And so, uh, do, you, do you tweet a lot? I tweet, yeah. I will tweet a little bit here and there. I'm not great at it. You know what I mean? I like to, uh, but I'll, I'll, you know, I'll get one out there every once in a while. I like it because it, it makes you not go, like, when you have an idea, like a joke I'll put on yeah. it. Yeah. It makes you sit there and go, okay, cut all the crap out. Yeah. Okay, you have this many things, because you know how we, and if you talk a lot, you just, you, comics tend to go on. It's like if you're in a room with comics that they're not performing if you're in a room with five comics they all stand up usually right my tweets are always like uh, the last one I tweeted uh, yesterday was uh, I said if a guy in a prison takes a picture of himself on his bunk is that a selfie spelled with a C and then I took a little space and went I'll show myself out okay I'm going to go ahead and show myself out. I'm sorry. I'm sorry to Twitter. I'm sorry to anybody who follows me. Hey, I love that. That's what's, I love doing stupid, just stupid jokes. Yeah, like, I, just, yeah. I just do them to see people go, is he serious? Like, I always do spoofs on a movie, like, you know, like Wonderful Life of Pi. Jimmy Stewart's in a boat with a tiger. <laughs> stupid <laughs> stuff. I like Wonderful Life of Pi. That's the kind of stuff that really makes me laugh. I love puns. My mom used to love puns, so I like that kind of wordplay stuff. I, I mean, and there's also just some people... 
that are craftsmen on there. There's right. a girl named Swisher Girl. She just, I don't know how she does it. She's not even a comic. She lives in Philly and sells Swisher cigars. That's what she does. That's she's funny. beautiful and she's great. Well, I want to thank you for coming on. I'm glad we could get get this in. Yeah, this is, I am too. So sorry for all of that. It's fine. No, it's good because, you know, I I like to get my good guests and that was great. So, uh, yeah, so people check them out. Gregory Barrett, check it out. Check them on Twitter. Follow me on Twitter. I'm at Cooper Talk, at Cooper Talk. Also, go to my website, coopertalk.net. I have, I don't know, I have like 325 episodes up and I'll be posting the Lance Barber episode uh, today. He was, he's on a, that show, The Comeback. Very funny, great guy. Also, go to iTunes or Stitcher, type in one word, Cooper Talk. You can find me there. I think I still have my app. I, they sent me something I need to update it, but I'm not, I, I don't make any money off it. And people don't really listen to it on the phone. And if you go to Google Play Store, the Google, you can find it on there. And email me. I love to hear what you're thinking. It's cooper at coopertalk.net. I always answer the emails. I like to hear what kind of guests you want. I'm trying to get some great guests for the new year. Keep it up. A lot of writers, a lot of comics, a lot of actors. And that's about it. So you guys have a great Christmas. I hope you're uh, safe and be careful out there because, you know, there's a lot of idiots. There's a lot of idiots going on Christmas. Yeah, a lot of idiots. But, like, but, yeah, yeah, but be yeah. careful and just be safe and take Uber or Lyft. Anyway, I'm Steve Kerr, but only as hip as my guests. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins. You guys have a great holiday, and I'll see you next week. Exactly.